altogether since August 2017, about a million of the refugees crossed the border. They came across by boat. They they, they came over the land uh, any way possible. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode two of What in the World. My name is Jake Lee, and I'm going to be your host for this podcast where we talk all about what God has been doing, is doing, in our own backyards and around the globe. We're going to be looking at this through Elmbrook Church, which has a long history and legacy of engaging people outside its doors. And for me, even personally, that's touched me. When I was in college up in Green Bay, my mentor was actually a supported field worker from Elmbrook. So it was just really cool that as I'm doing this podcast and working for Elmbrook now, my own spiritual upbringing, my own discipleship, mentorship, whatever you want to call it, was influenced by Elmbrook. So today we're going to be talking to uh, Dave Lovett about the refugee camps and refugee situation in Bangladesh. But before we dive into that, because that's a huge topic, I first want to take a moment to listen to a cultural blunder story from Dave. If we're engaging missionally and crossing cultures, we are going to make mistakes. That's just going to happen. And also the fact that God has never used perfect people. And I love the fact that we get to have people share stories of them making mistakes. So let's take a listen. Pam and I went to New Delhi and we were about to help run a ministry center there. Not even married a whole year. And I'm really excited. And I've heard that we had an apartment set up for us on the first floor. So I go rushing in, throw open the doors and say, hello, everybody, we're here. And there is sitting a Hindu family sitting around having a meal. And they all sort of <laughs> turn around and look at me in shock. You know, who is this crazy foreigner barging into our house? And so I, I've forgotten that there is, in India, it's always the ground floor, <laughs> first floor, then second floor. So it's, it's zero, like one, it. two, three. Yeah, yeah. So then later we thought, well, let's invite the Hindu family over. They're our landlord. We'll make friends. And, you know, we were just poor old missionaries, didn't have much money. And whatever the yeah. ditches were in this little hole in the wall. The Hindu family comes really happy to have us. We're going to have them over for a meal. And then I watch their eyes pop open and their mouths drop. When Pam comes in, instead of serving the food in nice serving dishes, she yeah. brought these pots out that were all black on the bottom with kerosene smoke. She put that oh. right on the table. And <laughs> I kind of just looked at it because, you know, hospitality is a big thing, but mm -hmm. how you serve the food and what you put it in. Anyway, we learned to get along with these guys, but our first months there, we're making these little blunders that, that um, yeah, we overcame them later with um, making friends with these. So landlords. you became friends with these people, even though you ran into their house and yelled at them, basically, <laughs> yeah. and then served yeah. them in a very culturally inappropriate way. <laughs> That's right. So we spent the rest of the time making up for it. No, we, we, <laughs> we were very, as quickly as possible to not do those things. Hey everyone, before I dive into my interview with Dave, I just wanted to let you know that the interview was actually recorded a couple weeks, maybe even a month back. I don't remember the exact date. But since then, a ton has changed um, in Bangladesh, um, especially in the refugee camps. Uh, their situation was already dire, which you will hear more about that situation when uh, I talk to Dave in this interview. 
But since then, a super cyclone has actually hit Bangladesh and India. And so one of the things we talked about was actually fundraising for food for the refugees who obviously are in very close quarters affected by COVID, which is terrible. But then on top of that, you throw a super cyclone, the need has gone drastically up where we are now talking about tons and tons of homes destroyed. Uh, thousands are homeless and without food. What we talked about in this episode is actually even worse now. So I just wanted to preface with that in case you are following the news and don't hear us talking about that in the interview. And also, we are going to include a link that you can go to to donate uh, for the refugees and those affected by the cyclone who are without home, without food. That'll be in the description. Now let's dive into the conversation I had with Dave. Today on the podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing Dave Levitt. You are the regional leader of OM in Central and South Asia. So you oversee 14 countries. Um, you're helping coach, mentor, train. There's a whole bunch of other words in here. Um, <laughs> I'm reading what you sent me. This is Dave's fault, everyone. <laughs> he even prefaced it with, it's a mouthful, I'm sorry, I'm a missionary. <laughs> That's right. But the yeah, whole- I mean, generally speaking, we're seeking to uh, live out and demonstrate the love of Christ yes. to the poorest and marginalized, mar- most marginalized in what we're calling the least reach to the world. I love that too. Proclaiming and demonstrating the love of Christ um, to the poorest and most marginalized. I mean, among the least reached. I think that's really yeah. cool. And you guys have lived overseas um, for, well, not overseas, but you've lived for 25 years in Central and South Asia. You guys have been all over the place. India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Tajikistan. And now you're in Milwaukee, but you're still serving um, that area, really resourcing it. Anything else you want me to bring up before we dive in? Uh, Pam is from a little small village of 492 people in <laughs> southwestern Wisconsin. I grew up 15 miles outside of Manhattan. Oh, and so, Manhattan. Yeah, it was God's mercy and grace to keep us together the last 38 years and coming <laughs> very different cultures and backgrounds. But um, yeah, and Pam had said to me, you know, I'm willing to go anywhere. Just don't make me live in the city. She's a village girl, you know? That's funny. So for where she lived all these years, Delhi, Dhaka, Dushanbe. Those are real these. small cities. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you and, did and not Pam keep is, your promise to your wife. <laughs> no, Pam persevered. She she has stuck in there through thick and thin, as we say, all these years. I didn't know that about you guys, that you had her as the really small town and then you as the big old city. Yeah, yeah, I'm a city boy, her her. I think I finally somehow was accepted into the family. Maybe I'm not sure if I ever fully know <laughs> that. I'm, I'm the city boy who took their daughter, the girl away from the village. I mean, that's a hard thing to deal with, but I'm pretty sure you're probably doing okay. <laughs> no, I'm great friends with, with, well, her mom's past, but her dad, 83 years old, still running his little farm. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. But no, um, so today, uh, what I really wanted to dive in with you, Dave, and obviously, like, um, I could interview uh, on a ton of different topics with your years of experience, the countries that you've been in, but we're going to kind of land on the Rohingya refugee situation today. If you could quickly give a short overview of that, if people don't know anything about the Rohingyas, like, what's the generic history, and then where are they right now, too? Uh, the Rohingya people are a 
um, unfortunately, a marginalized, oppressed mm-hmm. group of people stuck out in the middle of nowhere uh, have been in Myanmar, or used to be Burma, for decades since the British ruled that area. And But they were a Muslim minority in a majority Buddhist country. Yeah. And for cultural reasons, rejected. Uh, all those years they were oppressed inside Myanmar. Finally, uh, in 2017, in August, the government went for a full-scale ethnic cleansing yeah. and started murdering, burning the villages, and it, it was as bad as you can imagine. 25% of the refugees who came out then in the next weeks had family members who were killed. Uh, altogether, about a million people fled across the border from Myanmar to Bangladesh within literally six to eight weeks. And it created a refugee situation that just one of it is still the largest refugee camp in the world, <clears throat> probably one of the worst in the world as well. I, I've yeah. worked in a lot of relief situations in Afghanistan and Iran and Tajikistan. This is the worst I've ever seen as people, well, basically deforested the, the mm. whole countryside, trying to cut wood down and putting little makeshift houses of, say, 10 by 20 feet with plastic or, or some kind of something for a roof with little pieces of bamboo to hold yeah. it together. So they've, there's, they've been stuck kind of in no man's land. Bangladesh doesn't want them. They can't go back to Myanmar. Uh, so all that to be said, as soon as the refugee uh, situation came worldwide through the internet and through people watching this, we already had teams working in Bangladesh. We've been there for 50 years as OM working most of the time in cooperation with uh, uh, SIM there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we started to move some of our staff down into the refugee camp and starting to help in any way we could, initially with food, hygiene supplies, uh, even umbrellas because of monsoons. And, and any way we can, we started to try to help them for the last two years. So you guys have been working with them for a while, but it, it, I think it means a lot to hear you say that this is the worst you've ever seen. I mean, because you guys, you've been in a lot of areas that have dealt with a lot of poverty over the years and seen a lot of varying refugee groups. Just to me, that carries a lot of weight hearing that from you. Yeah, I mean, it's heartbreaking. You know, I walked into it and just looked at the condition and, and they're politically caught in the middle. I, I can understand Bangladesh is one of the poorest countries in the world, so they don't want another million people to take care of. and. Um, so it, it took about a year and a half. Finally, the government allowed them to get some kind of IDs through the United Nations forms so they have some identification. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, there's, the government still is not allowing us to do any kind of educational programs for the kids because they don't want them to be absorbed or integrated into Bangladesh. So, you know, you have children growing up without education. So, you know, it's a snowball effect. What is it going to mean? Just for clarity's sake, so we're talking about a camp in Bangladesh, uh, how yeah. many people are in that camp, just kind of g- generically? I, I should say the Rohingyas started to flee Myanmar a few years ago. They were just trickling okay. out. Uh, but then it became a flood in that fall of 2017. Altogether, yeah. since August 2017, about a million of the refugees crossed the border. They came across by boat. They, they, they came over land. Uh, any way possible, but they're concentrated 
in this little strip of land in south of a famous place called Cox's Bazaar, mm-hmm. which was the historically the, the tourist destination for all Bangladeshis. That has the largest or one of the largest beaches in the world. I think it's seventy-five kilometers long. Wow! Uh, it's a yeah, it's a beautiful place. People go there. You can find it on guys all going there just to show their video. I was here, you know, so. <laughs> Um, in Instagram or whatever, but um, or Facebook, but um, and and that was in a part of Bangladesh that already was one of the poorest part of Bangladesh. Oh. Um, if, if if you go down there, you'll find people um, who've made their living their whole life going out into the ocean there, the old-fashioned nets, trying something like you would have seen in Jesus' time. They're out there in their boats, putting the nets out seeing what fish they can bring in, dragging it up on the beach, hand-picking all the fish out, putting it on ice, and, and shipping it off. And, and again, they're making 3 or $4 a day. So, so very minimal, yeah. Uh, so a lot of the Bangladeshis aren't much better off than the refugees. And so actually our goal there is to help the Bangladeshis as well, not just the refugees. So you're talking about very impoverished Bangladeshis who are really living, you know, basic fishing, trying to make a very, very low income. You said two to three dollars, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's but then you also have like obviously like you have the Rohingya people who are in Myanmar, um, being kind of oppressed, like culturally, they, they were they were ostracized. And then you see in 2017, that's when everything kind of broke loose and you had this max exodus. Like before it was a slow trickle, but then you have yeah. a million people just rush across into this part of Bangladesh that's already impoverished. And then you throw a million more people who are even more economically deprived and even more impoverished. And that's like, then that's the situation you guys are entering into. Yeah. And, and just to add that Rohingya people are still trying to escape Myanmar slowly. There, okay. There's more still coming out. I just saw an article, a report uh, a few days ago that a boatload of Rohingya's uh, refugees were found floating at sea. They'd been on sea for two months. Whoa. And Malaysia wouldn't accept them. And by the time Bangladesh finally accepted them, you know, these people looked like they came out of a concentration camp. They're, they're, wow. They were down to skin and bones. Fortunately, Bangladesh had mercy and accepted them in. But that's the ongoing struggle that more refugees are coming out. Other countries like Malaysia and others are refusing mm-hmm. them and just putting them back to sea. Bangladesh, in some cases, is saying, hey, we can't take anymore. Yeah, so, I mean, they took a million um, in. I mean, that's hard. You're talking about a country that's not great economically, which is the main landing point for the Rohingya people, correct? That's right, yeah. And so so on the one hand, I would say initially there was a massive response by the NGO community worldwide. They, they Everybody flooded in. There was a lot of press coverage. News media was there. Now, you know, two years later, this story is off the, off the map. Mm-hmm. People aren't hearing or thinking about them. Uh, most NGOs have left because if you don't have ongoing funding, you don't stay. It just and the Bangladesh government, like I said, unfortunately, well, I won't get into it all. It's just to say, it's a politically sensitive area of the country. Sure. Uh, we still have a team working down in the southern part of the long line of these of the refugee camps that are spread out, and uh, we've put we started five schools so far. So. We're just be, we're finding creative ways of doing this. So we're sort of serving Bangladeshis, but also helping Rohingyas come in. Um, 
we're moving ahead slowly but surely to continue a long-term presence there. But it's very challenging. It's so the, probably the, one there of is some the schools, most difficult. Oh, yeah. sorry, Dave. So there is some schools that you guys have started, but you also you mentioned some roadblocks before to education where the government wasn't allowing you to do that. That's right. The way we're doing this is primarily making this for local Bangladeshis, but then okay. bringing in Rohingya refugee children as a part of it so that it's not exclusively for the Rohingyas. Yeah, I mean, the um, I, I'm hopeful that we'll see how this will all play out. Unfortunately, the other issue right now is the COVID-19 yeah, I was gonna ask pandemic that. coming in. Yeah, it, it is definitely already done there. Uh, I don't think there's any way to stop it. I mean, when you yeah. have a million people crowded together, there is no such thing as social distancing. Yeah, no six foot. They, they don't have water to clean their hands. They don't have sanitizers. It's just not a reality. I think, so the good thing is the World Food Program is providing food for the refugees, so that's there. But they're not, they're not allowed to leave the camp. They're not allowed to work. Um, mm. it, it is an impossible situation. I, I, I'm praying that somehow the Bangladeshi government finds a way to accept that they're going to have to stay and allow many NGOs like ourselves to come alongside them, do more education for the children, find ways to help people create jobs that's, that's, um, that's going to create sustainability for people. But to keep them all in that camp forever, I just the other danger is that you know more extremist groups will infiltrate, and they'll play yeah. on the hardship and try to get people to join you know, the ISIS type of, of groups. So, yeah, I'm really hoping that we'll find a better, longer-term way of moving ahead sure. to deal with um, justice concerns and um, ways of uh, helping to to alleviate poverty for the long term. I should just add one more thing here, uh, Jake, is that uh, one of the things we did discover, too, are local believers, Christians, in the middle of the camp. Oh, there uh, are some in there then. Yeah, some had come to faith in Jesus while they were in Myanmar and came over as Christians. Others decided to follow Jesus as they heard the gospel through not just our group, but others. About three weeks ago, uh, some extremist group, though, like I mentioned, that does already exist, came in with swords and knives and axes and went through a and attacked these local believers little thatched roof yeah. makeshift houses tore into them broke up there there actually was a little small tiny makeshift church they had there sure. where 20 people could sit and they and they broke that all up so about 80 families fled the refugee camp and i'm not haven't heard yet now what's happened to them a couple of these people i had met myself i knew them face to face and So persecution of local believers is another unfortunate reality in that context. When in the world. In this part of the podcast, I want to take us back to look over the years and the history of Elmbrook Church as this body of believers has sought to glorify God's name in the States, around the world, and has sought to love those who are vulnerable, love those who are far from God. For today's episode, I want to go back to 2005, August 29th, when Hurricane Katrina made landfall and would go on books as the fifth deadliest hurricane to hit the United States, killing 1,245 people, people who had families, who had wives, children, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, a horrible, horrible tragedy. And it was at this point when the U.S. was stunned 
that Elmbrook decided to partner with Samaritan's Purse. For the first time, we sent a semi to the Gulf Coast with supplies, and over the next three years, sent 26 teams to the Gulf Coast. And from this point moving forward, Elmbrook has continued to partner with Samaritan's Purse. Elmbrook has sent teams to respond to 13 hurricanes, 16 tornadoes, 12 floods, three ice storms, in a total of 19 states. But it hasn't just been in the United States that we felt the call to respond. Uh, we also responded to the earthquake in Haiti. To date, Elmbrook has had the privilege of sending over 140 immediate and rebuild teams. So this is just a really cool part of our legacy as a church, as a body of believers seeking to honor God with what we have and something we are going to continue doing. That is this week's segment of One in the World. So there's a huge differing array of issues here. We're talking economic, you're talking, um, right now you're having some NGO help at least with food, um, extreme poverty. You're having um, obviously COVID going through the camps that you can't really stop because there's just no room. And you're also running into religious persecution besides the cultural persecution that they were fleeing from previously. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that is unfortunate reality that it's um that's the context for a lot of them and and then in the middle of it the COVID-19 virus is is unstoppable in that camp so yeah I mean it's going to have to run through its course they for sure yeah I mean I'm sure they're doing the best they can't government's going to do the best they can to try to mitigate this but um, what do you do? Like you, like in America, obviously we have our own issues where we can't agree on what to do. We're constantly flipping back and forth, you, you, like getting us to cooperate. And then you talk about a refugee camp where there isn't even a six foot option, like, and not basic sanitizing stuff. Like, I mean, what, what do you, yeah, what can you do even? I mean, I watched people, you know, they're, they're so desperate for water. They're going to these little ponds or mud puddles, we would almost call them ponds where you're going there mm. with your buckets and getting water and taking it back and you have no choice either you cook with it or you don't or yes but it's a um yeah i mean the way they're surviving and thankfully to the united nations and the government at least they're actually provided little gas uh cookers so they're actually okay. believe it or not they're giving a little gas cylinders that like kind of like what you'd use for camping here, you know, yeah. these little makeshift green little thing, Coleman stove type things. And, and they just refill it. And they, and uh, so that's at least keeping them from going out further and, yeah. and just cutting even more and more trees down because the forest yeah. that was there, it's, it's just completely barren now. It's just barren hills and creates another set of problems. Yeah. You're so, talking about, you're talking about environmental problems now too, which the ramifications of that will last for a long time too. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think we are praying into this for God's intervention. On the one hand, how should we continue to practically show and demonstrate the love of Christ, whether it's providing a cup of cold water in his name and some food, if we can do education, if we can do some long-term mm-hmm. other kind of projects. I mean, what we'd like to do is, is women's empowerment as well. Yes. Uh, but that, in, in that includes education. Most of the women are illiterate. Most of the men and women can't read or write still. So literacy is another big need. So we're praying for some breakthrough with the government. That And COVID-19 has now eclipsed everything. Bangladesh is in a complete lockdown. Or at least trying to 
in lockdown um, as best they can, but even there, it's it's impossible. You thirty percent, forty percent of Bangladesh are day laborers. Again, the same. I might have said that earlier. Two or three dollars a day is the average salary. Even the garment workers in the big garment factories that produce the clothing we all wear, we buy it from Kohl's and Walmart and yeah. whatever. And um, and I, believe it or not, an average salary there is only sixty five dollars a month, and that's a wow. you know, eight ten hour shift on a sewing machine. And and so you know they initially let probably I don't know how many millions of people lost their jobs in the lockdown, but they they're reopening all the garment factories because you can't cannot afford. You know the cure becomes worse than the disease if people are dying of starvation. Yeah, and, and yeah. So, um, so it, it is, it, it is what it is. We're, we're, our own teams are beginning to go out and provide food into refugee camps and, uh, what, in whatever ways we can, you can't do big distributions because literally my friends there are telling me, you know, people are so desperate on the streets and Dhaka, for example, that if they see or hear any potential source of money or food, you, you'll just have a mob. Hmm. So we're, we're, carefully um, selecting the worst off, you know, so you have to do a little research and to say who really, really is the worst off here. Yeah. And, and so you do 10 families a day or something like that, and then quietly go to their homes and distribute food. Uh, but there's a refugee camp just close to where, where Pam and I lived in Dhaka in 1986 to 88. Our daughter was born there in a, in a mission hospital up in the jungles near the border of Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was started by a guy named Viggo Olsen, who, believe it or not, was one of the first missionaries. He was a doctor supported by Elmbrook back in the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've read yeah. about him. Yeah, so there's a long history there that, that goes way back into Bangladesh with, with Elmbrook. And, um, but near where we used to live, there's a, a refugee camp there of, 250,000 people living in one square mile. And COVID is just running uh, without, without uh, any, you can't stop it. So it's just rampaging through that community. So that's one of the communities we're st- starting to provide food for as well. So not just for Hinga refugees, these are called Bihari refugees in Dhaka. Yeah. So Dave, obviously when we're looking at this situation or we're talking about it, and people listening to this too, it does sound pretty hopeless. Like obviously you guys are doing what you can to provide food, um, trying to get some education in there, um, doing what you can. But in the midst of all of this, how are you seeing God move? Or do you have any stories of, you know, maybe something hopeful happening in this season? Yeah, I realize it is. Sometimes people ask me and I do feel overwhelmed at times. I, I always have to go back to my, my, where I, my starting point is that, you know, not only God created everyone, God loves everyone, everyone is valuable, everyone is important. And so let's, let's focus on individuals and people that, that uh, we can, in, in that sense, focus on um, individually. But I... And, and they themselves, so many people are looking for hope out there. Does anybody care? Does God care? Is God there? Mm-hmm. And, and those are the questions people ask, like all of us. And so in a sense, uh, when we go out and we're giving uh, food packets to individual families, 
um, it is a, a very conscious way of practical way of saying, hey, you matter. God loves you. Mm-hmm. And God has not forgotten you, we, and we haven't forgotten you. So when it comes to individuals, um, and, and when I look at these kind of situations that look a little scary and dark or whatever, I, I just think of what Jesus said, you know, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your hmm. light under the bushel. And he said, and through your good deeds. They will, your light is going to shine and they'll glorify your father in heaven. And so it is the mandate for us is to go into yeah. this is the challenging thing in the COVID 19 where it says stay at home and shelter yourself. And that's the whole purpose of our lives now. And I was thinking, no, Jesus said, go to the dark situation, go into that dark situation to shine. It, it isn't a calling to hide and to completely protect myself and say, I won't take any risk while I know, no, I know we have an order and stay at, stay at home and all that. And yet I thought about it. I said, you know, wait a second, what, but this doesn't begin or end with COVID-19. We, we have lots of situations that are dangerous, considered dangerous or risky. And even to go into Bangladesh, which is where we're going to go back to and we're trying to get others to go there. Yeah, of course it is trusting Psalm 91. We're, we're, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say the Lord, He is my refuge and strength. He's my strong tower and deliverer. It's under His wings that I'm trusting. We're going to go forward and we want to be that light in that dark context. And actually, you know, I'm sure you've just seen this happen. If you, you have a candle and you light it and it's bright daylight, you, you can't even see it. But it mm-hmm. gets nighttime and it's dark. You can see that candle from across the road, you know, it, it shines brighter. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of uh, one story was in, in the, uh, Here, I'm going to cut you off before you share one real quick. Yeah. I wanted to highlight what you said, because I think it was important. Oh, okay. Um, so there was two things. One, I really liked the start of your answer when I asked about hope and what are stories of hope. And obviously you're going to share one, but yeah. I think it's very powerful. The fact that, in this season, we as Christians are called to be that light. We are supposed to be that hope that God is sending out. And I think that's a very important challenge and one Christians need to remember. That's our calling. That's all Christians. Yeah. That's not just some Christians. That's not just missionaries. Yeah. That's everyone. And the second is that in this season, yes, we always do everything we can to take, well, no, we should take care of the most vulnerable. And in some situations, that means being careful with social distancing or in sure. many cases. But- it also means I don't operate out of fear for myself. And I think that's the biggest thing you're saying is like staying at home, if that's what you're doing, isn't because of fear for yourself. Staying at home needs to be to protect people, but you need to be constantly on the lookout. Is there a way that I can go out, that I can be that light and not worry so much about myself? Why in the world? In this part of the podcast, I get to talk about one of the things I'm most passionate about, which is super exciting. Why do we care? Why worry about mission? Why worry about vulnerable people? Why worry about the poor? Who cares about orphans or widows or sojourners? They're not my family. Well, why do I care about them? This is something that is incredibly close to God's heart is the simplest answer. Because throughout scripture, God cares about people. 
He cares about the vulnerable. He cares about the widow and the orphan, those who have no family. He cares about the sojourner, those who have no home. And we as Christians are called to care about the things God cares about. And for me, this has drastically shaped the course of my life. So one quick story from me, I remember the first time I heard about unreached people groups, which this is a whole topic that I could spend a multiple podcasts unpacking, but for simplicity's sake, it's simply people who have never heard about Jesus and don't have anyone near them who can tell them about Jesus. And by near them, I mean, maybe they don't have anyone who speaks their language who knows Jesus, or they don't have access to a Bible, or they live in a part in the world, they're just completely cut off from anyone who knows Jesus. And I remember sitting and watching this video scroll And in this video, it started with a song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. And there was a full chorus singing at the beginning and it was showing countries and giving the populations and how many were Christian and how many followed Jesus. And then as the song proceeded, slowly singer by singer would drop out. And it continued to go to countries that had less and less and less people who followed Jesus. And I remember at this point, something in me kind of snapped. I didn't cry at this point in my life, but I remember starting to cry. And then it started to get to places that it was flashing the number zero. That in this part of the world, there are zero people who follow Jesus. There are zero, zero, none. And I started bawling and crying uncontrollably. And like I said, at this point in my life, I didn't cry. So this was super embarrassing for me. I was newly married and I didn't know what to do with this. But at that point, God was starting to break my heart for something that was important to him. God cared about people. He cared about people who had never heard about him. And I was finally starting to develop that heart. And God was breaking my heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh and helping me realize there are people who have never had the privilege to hear about Jesus, this amazing, amazing person that is calling us into relationship with himself that is calling us into relationship with the God of the universe. So that's the very first reason I want to give why. Why do we do this? It's because God loves people and we need to start to develop a heart that loves people. This is Why in the World. I think the example for me would be, and, and I'm sure you, you've, everybody's thought about this, that when, you know, what's the equivalent of modern day COVID-19 for some people? It might be a little extreme, but just imagine leprosy in the sure. first century. And, and here those 10 lepers come. And I can imagine the early, those disciples might have been like, hey, <laughs> you're not coming near us. <clears throat> we need to keep not just six feet, that's 100 feet. And, yeah, much more uh, we're, Yeah, and, and yet Jesus says, he, you know, no, come and, yeah, be cleansed. You know, I don't know if Jesus touched them or not, if he hugged them. Um, but, you know, there's um, the calling we have to embrace suffering. To, what does it mean to identify with Jesus and follow him and say, hey, I'm following Jesus who reached out to the lepers. He reached out yeah. to the marginalized and the people. And it was dangerous. And he did risk his life. And he was threatened. And eventually, yeah, we know, of course, he did something that none of us are going to do. He would, he would, as we celebrated, he went to the cross for us yeah. and then was resurrected. But then you look at all the disciples, the apostles, the examples of their lifestyle and uh, embracing the opportunity, God using them in the midst of 
the danger even in the midst of that dark time. And yeah, and I think that's the, the, the question I've been asking, Lord, what is it you're doing in the middle of this? What do you want us to be a part of? Because the end of COVID-19 should not be that I've retreated more into my little world of protecting myself. I hope that it's, it's that we don't come out of this with a lifestyle of, of more kind of living in a sense of fear and that I base my decisions out of that. I think we have to fight against fear driving us. I, I mm-hmm. think actually even it's a strategy of the evil one to, to get us to dictate our lifestyles around reacting to fear rather than, no, God is still in control and he's called us to step out and reach out into our communities. And so I think when we talk about essential work and essential uh, roles in our society, maybe we can't meet. Okay, I realize that would be one aspect. Yeah, we won't meet as a huge church because yeah. we don't want to infect anybody. We're cautious. We're going to take care but of the this, vulnerable. And that's a situation okay. where we can be smart and sacrifice something to take care of someone who's more vulnerable. That's right. And we, we're being taking precautions. The other side of it is there's such an essential role of the church and what we're supposed to be doing and how do we find, uh, find other ways of doing it. So I have to say, yeah, like my, my sister-in-law has been diagnosed with cancer since the COVID started. Mm-hmm. So we've gone up there to be with her and just minister a little bit spiritually, physically, emotionally, whatever we can do. And yeah, we're careful, but that just shouldn't stop us from actually being with people in some of these situations. And that's the danger, I think, of, of just stopping. And oh, I would never go to Bangladesh and the Rohingya refugee camps. It's just too dangerous, or, period. I'm just not even going to consider it. Rather than, no, God, maybe you want me to go there. How do you want me to be involved? In? And so, yeah, my prayer is, uh, Lord, help us to be willing to still take risks. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. you know, the greatest danger for me is not uh, at this point, I get COVID-19. I think the greatest danger is I can begin to live a life that is so careful and so, in a sense, I, I could, at the end of my life, I don't think I'm going to look back and say, wow, wasn't that great? I had no danger, no risk. I didn't get into anybody else's trouble or, and I yeah. just protected, my, protected myself and lived as safe as possible. Uh, you know, when I get to heaven, I think I hope by God's grace we can say, Hey, Lord, I did what you wanted me to do. I was out there involved with people. And it was messy, and maybe it was with some risks. But um, we were shining light in that dark um, situation. I like that don't operate out of fear. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways is like, we are called to be a light. We are not called to operate out of fear or be worried so much about our own safety. And we're supposed to be worried about the welfare of others. And I think that needs to be more of the motivation and advancing God's kingdom. And in this season... Yes, that's going to be different. You just said certain things we can't do, but that doesn't mean the function of the church stops. The church is essential. The church needs to continue moving forward. Like right now, you guys are providing food for people who are starving. Like that's an essential function of the church. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, $30 provides one family food for two weeks. And that's Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, any of those countries. And so, yeah, we're, we can't help everybody, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't help some people. So we should help some. And let's be involved with, with um, where we can. Let's do what we can. Just one quick story. And that Go was um, in the Rohingya refugee camp. The first guy we sent down to be our team leader was a young 25-year-old. We had put him through intensive training and disaster relief by one of our specialists. 
from Switzerland who flew down there and spent a month with him, sort of training him on the job. His name is Ferdows. And mm-hmm. he started to reaching out into the community, making friends, hanging out with people every day, day in and day out. And he started doing, um, among other things, a sports program for young men because they have nothing to do. They're sitting around all day long in the camp. So he started playing soccer with them. And uh, eventually, every day, this became the main event of the day for that <laughs> refugee camp was that everybody could come out. Everybody wants to play, you know. And so it was now you have to just keep you have a waiting list of those who really want to get out in the field. But eventually, every day, it was four or 500 refugees coming out to watch the game and, and then hang out afterwards. So obviously, through all that, he, people were asking him, what do you believe? Why are you doing this? Who are you? And he began to share his faith with a, with a lot of the refugees. One day, a family called him and said, hey, um, our, we, my wife just had a baby, and um, you know, we respect you. We've gotten to know you. Will you please come over? We want you to name our baby, which culturally is a really big deal. So he came yeah. over, decided to give the name Abraham, which is, you know, uh, and Ibrahim is a big name. Abraham's considered the father of the faith for mm-hmm. Islam, for Christians, Jews as well. And so gave that name, and then he unpacked um, where was Abraham's story going in the long term. You know, Genesis 12, I will bless you to be a blessing to all nations, and how that mm-hmm. is fulfilled in Christ. And so, yeah, so it, it is an ongoing story. We're going to keep reaching out, but I think. So many of those refugees, you know, would be, if they could speak today, they'd say thank you for those who came, were involved with us in our darkest hour, showing you cared, that you're willing to be with us in this time. And that's what I hope we can continue to do. No, I really like that. I think that's a very powerful story. It's just one of um, simple relationship building of just spending time with people and then that opens the door to name me a kid. Yeah, for them, it's a big deal culturally. For me, too. If I let someone name my kid, that would be a big deal, too. Yeah, seriously. It would be like, hey, name my John, kid? come on over. What? <laughs> like, I mean, I have to be pretty close to somebody to choose to do that. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. It's, it was a very special thing. And I have a picture of him holding the baby, but can't show that right now. But I would um, love to see it, though. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you, Dave, um, so I wanted to know, did you have a takeaway or a challenge that you kind of wanted to bring before the people who are going to be listening to this podcast? Yeah, I think that the takeaway for me is, you know, when I think of a scripture that, that encapsulates this is Matthew 9, when it says Jesus was going through all the villages, healing the sick, uh, bringing freedom from the oppressed, deliverance. Uh, pressure of evil spirits and those sort of things. And then it says, but then he looked on the multitudes and he saw that they were like, they're harassed and scattered. Like he uses the expression with like sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And his heart is moved with compassion. And I just thought that that is probably one of the needs we, we need to to not look just at my little world, my thing, and, I, and it is important. I'm not negating at all the struggles we're having here, but lift up our eyes a little bit. Look where God is looking at other places and people and let God move our hearts with compassion to see them through his eyes that he loves them, he cares about them, and then 
Lord, how do you want to use us to be a, a help? How do we be a part of this? And um, I can't do everything, but it doesn't mean I shouldn't do something. Yeah. And and what's that something? It's certainly prayer. Uh, I think would be taking a little extra step just to go and Google what what's happening, what what's going on in, mm-hmm. in um, Bangladesh or wherever. Like I have, uh, I've logged on. I get news every day from on Google sent to me from India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and I can just skim through it, pick up an article, hear what's going on, and then pray. Or there's there's prayer casts going on right now because this is the month of Ramadan, yep. the month of fasting. You know, in the Muslim world, so we're praying through all over the world. Um, and then um, I'm actually right now my Facebook. I am doing a fundraiser that's going to go to May 9th. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, people are. I'm asking uh, if people can give just $30 that feeds one family for two weeks. And my goal is to help 400 families. So I'm trying to go for $10,000 right now. I'm about getting close to 3000 And um, that's, that's a very simple, small way. I mean, we're not all going to restaurants right now, at least to, as much as we used to. We could do no. takeout. But um, uh, yeah, just contribute something small like that as well. It's, it's very practical. Well, is there anything else you wanted to say before I wrap up? Uh, just thank you for taking the initiative to do this, Jake. I really appreciate it. It's exciting to be a part of this with you and trust that it will, I hope, be an inspiration and challenge as well to many people. That's what I'm hoping to. I mean, I love the idea yeah. of people kind of broadening their perspective to realize that Yes, what we're struggling with in America and in your own homes are a very real thing, are something that God cares about. Yeah. But we as Christians are called to have a broader perspective at what's happening all around the globe and what is God doing in a bigger picture. And conversations like talking with you are such a good way to start to tap into that because you guys are really, you people in the trenches, you guys were in the trenches, you guys are every day keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on. So thank you for making time uh, for me and for everyone who's going to listen to this podcast. And yeah, that's all I got. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Jake. It's a privilege. I just wanted to say thank you to Dave once again for coming in and doing this interview. I really appreciate his perspective and like hearing and learning about what's happening around the world. It's very easy for us to turn a blind eye on suffering because it's uncomfortable And the reality is, is that people are always suffering and we as the church are supposed to dive into that and be a light in those situations. I just am really glad that Dave has such a practical next step for us. And so, like I said, I'm going to be including the link in the description of this podcast and wherever we post this on social media about how you can give to the families in these camps and the families affected, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, by the cyclone. Thank you guys for tuning in to What in the World. If you are enjoying this podcast, please like it. Uh, Feel free to share it. Give us your comments on things you'd like to hear more information about or maybe for the direction of future podcasts. Next week, we are going to be diving into the Amazon rainforest and visiting Brazil. So make sure you tune in for that. And once again, thank you for listening to What in the World.